Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my privilege and honor to welcome you to our press conference. My name is William Bowers, and I'm a part of Mr. Campbell's sociology class. Many of you are today are asking the same question. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Why do we even care about this? It starts 37 years ago when a man murdered an unknown woman and laid her body beside an interstate. Four years later, five more women shared the same fate. Those women would be found along interstates and highways across multiple states. At the time of their death, the women were found with reddish hair. Law enforcement at the time couldn't solve the murders due to the women never being identified and their transient lifestyles. The cases became cold for over 35 years till a few people asked why hasn't the murderer and the women have been identified yet? On a cold winter day in January, my teacher, Mr. Campbell, asked me and my fellow classmates this simple question. How can one person be found in over 250 million people? We looked at each other at, with puzzled faces. And then we started to make categories like race, hair color, occupation, etc. By the end of class, we had 20 different categories that can at least narrow the list of people enough to find that one person. After that, we spent months learning about the redheaded merch. We learned what a serial killer is. We looked into the lives of some of the most infamous serial killers like Ted Bundy and Richard Chess. With the information provided and what we have learned, we were able to create an MO, a signature, and the profile for the murderer. We had help and support for many people, and with the support of them, we had the strength to create this press conference up to death. I would like to thank many wonderful people today. I would like to thank Campbell County Sheriff's Office, Carter County Sheriff's Department, Elizabethan Police Department, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, and Kentucky State Police, who are representing multiple counties across multiple states, who are willing and determined to give justice to those women and judgment for the murder. Crittenden County Sheriff's Office, Chiefman County Sheriff's Office, Knox County Sheriff's Office, and West Virginia State Police sadly are not here today, but they are working on this case as well. I would also like to thank the media for coming. You're our best ally, spread our information across the United States, and bring awareness to our case. And finally, the students and our teacher, Mr. Campbell. Without the hard work, grit, and determination by the students, we would never have this press conference today. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, human progress is neither automatic nor inedible. Every step towards the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. The tireless distortions and passionate concerns of dedicated individuals. The men and women that you see here today are dedicated to these cases. The tireless work and effort by these individuals are the reason why these cases have been brought back. I also had the opportunity to introduce our first speaker, Mr. Shane Waters. Mr. Waters is the creator of the Out of Shadows podcast, 
On the podcast, Mr. Waters works on the cold cases and seeks out the information about those cases. He has done tremendous work on his podcast for victim advocacy. And without the help and support from him, we would never have this press conference today. Thank you, and welcome to our press conference. Hello, everyone. I am Shane Waters, the podcaster of the True Crime Investigative Podcast. Two and a half years ago, I started my podcast because I wanted to share the stories about cold cases that have eluded the public's mind. On every case, I would allow family members to speak for victims about their loved ones because it's important for me, for listeners, to grasp the reality of the situation. These are real people who had goals and dreams like you and I. But all of that was robbed from them because of the actions of another. There was a big two-word problem with this case that makes it almost untouchable to storytellers like myself, Jane Doe. Out of the six victims that we believe could be a part of the redhead murders, all but one remain unidentified people. That's right. After more than 30 years, only one of these victims has a name. To make matters worse, there was little to no information known about the one victim with a name, and I couldn't even locate a photo of her when I was putting together the episode. How can a podcaster cover a case involving six women with no family to speak with, with only five minutes of information on a storytelling platform? I felt defeated. I felt like I had no choice but to put the case down and move on to something easier. I can remember sitting at my computer about to drag this file on my desktop titled Redheads to the trash when I realized that this is the exact thing that is preventing this killer from being caught. More than that, I knew that this is what the killer assumed would happen each time he targeted a new victim. I believe he assumed that society wouldn't care that these women were gone. After all, if there is no family to come forward to fight for them, Surely it will not be a story worth telling. My friend and colleague, Gemma Hoskins, who some of you may know as the grassroots amateur investigator from Netflix docuseries, The Keepers, once told me that when all hope seems lost and you find yourself up against a wall and feel defeated, there's only one thing to do. You keep on keeping on. Gemma and I have been working together the past several months because there wasn't enough information for a podcast episode. So we decided to find our own information. On the series we have put together for listeners so they can join us up at the very beginning of our journey. And they will continue with us until there isn't anything left behind for us to find. We are five episodes in, and trust me, we are going to keep on going. Today, I realize that I have driven more than 5,000 miles from my home in northern Indiana to travel where these victims were found. A couple days ago, I drove past a location where the daughter to one of my best friends lost her life, and I saw a cross. I realized that that cross symbolized not only a lost life, but also a family that refused to forget. So I made six crosses by hand, and I painted them red.
and over the last few days, I have been retracing some of my previous travels to put a cross in each of these locations that the victims were found in. Three down, three to go. If there is anything I have learned over the last two and a half years, it is the importance of having a family that continues to push the cases, not only in front of detectives, but also the media and community. Today I stand here, along with the high school sociology class, to remind the world of these six women. Today we are their family. In the third episode of my series, my listeners heard from a young woman who believes that this Jane Doe found in Barberville, Kentucky, is her mother. One day, her mother gave birth to her little newborn girl, Elizabeth, and soon after, she disappeared. You are about to hear a student read a letter from Elizabeth about how this entire ordeal has affected her life. As you listen, I want you to remember that we all have a past. There are things we all have done that we aren't exactly proud of. But that doesn't mean that we deserve to die. These women may have a similar past, but they were not less of a person for it. If the coward responsible for these murders is watching, I have a message for you. We will not stop. We will not forget. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Honestly, I never gave up hope. But I didn't think I would live to see this day or to even be a part of this unraveling story. As a young girl growing up, it was just my dad and I. I never really thought about where my mother was. I knew I had one somewhere. I just wasn't old enough to understand at the time. My dad worked long hours every day. After his job, 
he would come home and cut lawns as a second job. On Saturday mornings, we would walk down into town and eat breakfast at the shake shop. Afterwards, we would go and play Pac-Man at the laundromat. This became our Saturday morning tradition. Sometimes he would let me go and cut a yard with him. I remember sitting on his lap steering the riding mower. I loved helping him. The smell of fresh cut grass still brings me back to these days. Even though he worked a lot, I can't recall a time he didn't provide. He taught me responsibilities early in life that I may not have seen the importance in when I was younger, but I have learned I am so grateful for now. He was always a hard worker, but I always sensed a certain sadness about him. It wasn't until age 10 or 11 I discovered I had siblings. Most of my childhood had been spent assuming I was an only child, until finding out I had five other siblings. As I began reaching out to them in my teenage years, I became very curious about my birth mother. This curiosity also peaked after a very important woman in my life had passed away in 1997. This woman would occasionally keep me when my father had to work and became a huge inspiration in my life. I remember sitting in her lap one day and asking her if she would be my mother, and to my surprise, she said yes. Up until this point, I had never attended a church service before. I thank God for placing her in my life. I have no idea where I would be without her influence in my younger years. I was only 14 when she passed away, but in the eight years I knew her, she became my world. When she passed away, I was furious. Why would God take something so good away from me? Anyone love me the way that she loved me? And then I remembered someone already did. We don't always understand God's plans over our lives. We just have to trust them. In 2002, I graduated high school. This was the first day my dad ever told me he was proud of me. It was very bittersweet at the time. I started thinking more and more about you, Mom. Where are you? Are you alive? Did you leave on your own, or did something happen that prevented you from coming back? Over time, I've heard stories about you that no child should ever have to hear about their mother. I tried asking Dad about you, but he would become so angry, and I never understood why. I even began to wonder if he saw you when he looked at me, and if that triggered memories about you he would rather not speak of. To this day, I still do not know the truth. Mom, if you can hear me, I want you to know that there was always an emptiness in me due to your absence, but also a connection. You have always been with me, maybe not in the flesh, but I have carried you in my heart. All my life, I hope to find you alive and well, to greet you one day with open arms and wrap you in a tight embrace, to tell you that even in not knowing you, I have loved you, reassure you that I was never mad and that everything will be okay. Not knowing the circumstances of your disappearance has left me with many thoughts. You were last seen in March of 1985. It is now 2018. 33 years have passed and no sign of you until recently. I am now 34 years old and have four children of my own. I'm still searching for you and I have a feeling the answers I have been seeking will soon be discovered. I'm feeling more helpful than ever. As you can obviously tell, there's been a lot of work that's gone into this press conference by these excellent students. And my name is Alex Campbell, and it's a great pleasure that I get to work with these young people every day. And during the course of this semester, the students have worked with a professional profiler and members of the law enforcement community. And these experts explain to us that if you have the same MO and the same offender signature in the same geographical area in the same period of time, 
then it's almost assuredly the same person responsible. So as a class, we began to look at each of the roughly dozen cases that are oftentimes to as the redhead murders that took place from 1978 until 2001. But there were six of these murders that stood out because they were so similar. So our students began to focus on these cases. These murders occurred between 1980 and 85, and the bodies were discovered between 1983 and 85. So we knew that we had six murders occurring in the same time period. So then we looked at geographic location, and we found the same six murders, three in Tennessee, Campbell, Cheatham, and Greene County, plus one in Wetzel County, West Virginia, with one just across the border in Knox County, Kentucky, and finally another one just across the border in West Memphis, Arkansas. They were all linked because of not just geographic proximity, but because they were connected by highways and interstates along the Knoxville-Nashville corridor, with Knoxville being the geographic center of the crimes. So now we felt that we had the same time period and the same geography. So we moved on to develop an MO of the unsub. The MO is what the perpetrator does to affect the crime and to escape. Oftentimes, this is thought of as the how of the killing. Then we created the offender signature, which is what personal or psychological gratification the murderer gets from the killing. Oftentimes, it is referred to as the why. So once we had these two items and we began to compare them, we realized we had the same MO and the same offender signature in all six cases. So after concluding that we had the same location, same time period, same MO, and same signature, we enlisted the help of professionals in evaluating our work. We consulted, and they agreed with us that these six murders are most likely the work of one person. So we have shared this information with law enforcement officials, and today we're making these documents publicly available to the media and the public, including the eight-page psychological profile. To quickly summarize that profile, the killer is most likely a lone white male that was born between 1936 and 1962, putting him between 56 and 82 years old. He is five foot nine to six foot two, with an average to athletic or stocky build, weighing between 180 and 270 pounds. He lived and/or worked out of the greater Knoxville area, possibly Nashville, as a truck driver. He most likely started driving a truck around 1980 and probably left that job in 1985. He's likely right-handed, has an IQ that is slightly above 100. Sexual orientation is heterosexual. His killing motive is mission, which means that he sees victims as a way to accomplish an end. He is possible of long-term relationships. He most likely has had long-term girlfriends, possibly even married, and children. He likely grew up in an unstable home with drug and alcohol abuse. And he could have previous criminal charges from interactions with authorities because of solicitation of prostitution or traffic violations associated with his job. There would be no history of mental illness, and his religious affiliation is most likely Christianity. We believe there is a good chance this perpetrator is still alive and possibly living in the Knoxville area. Because there was obviously a link between these six murders, we needed a way to distinguish these six victims from about the dozen that are oftentimes referred to as the redhead murders. We also wanted to focus attention for the first time on the likelihood that these six murders were committed by the same person. So since these murders happened around Tennessee and what is oftentimes referred to as the Bible Belt, and most of the victims were strangled or suffocated, we have decided to name this serial killer the Bible Belt Strangler. Sadly, 
Murder has been around as long as humanity. People think they can commit such acts and get away from the prying eyes of public, and they'll never be seen. They'll think there'll be no witnesses. They think they're too good at their craft. They think they're too smart. But often, when some time has passed, they feel like they're never going to be caught. But the monster we now seek took the lives of six women that we feel he intentionally targeted because they were out on their own alone, with no family and no friends. Their lives were most likely stolen from them in the dark back parking lots of truck stops and rest areas, and then dumped along lonely highways at night where he thought no one would see him. And he's eluded justice for almost 40 years. But the Bible Belt Strangler's wrong. He made a mistake. Somebody saw something. Somebody's heard something. The blood of these six women that was spilled into the overgrown hedges of our nation's highways and interstates has gone unnoticed for way too long. And today we are here to recognize these voices and give them justice for which they're still crying out. We want the media to hear their cry as well. So the people out there with the information that law enforcement needs to identify these victims and solve these crimes can come forward. So Bible Belt Strangler, we know you're out there. We know that somebody has information to help find you and hold you accountable. And after today, everyone knows that we're looking for you. And today, everyone knows that we are our sister's keepers because we're like family. And this time, no matter how hard you squeeze your evil hands, you will never be able to silence their cries. Good evening. My name is Mason Peterson. And as you've heard, we started on this cold case and is on 35 years since the first body was found in Wessel County, West Virginia. To this day, all cases remain unsolved, and we only know the identity of one out of six victims. So we need the public's help. We need you to be aware of this case. We need you to share this case around with any info that we are giving you or what you already know. We need you to find people that may know something we don't. Then the people with this information should contact the police. There's no doubt that someone saw something and thought it was probably nothing or it's not that important. It could be something, whether big or small, it could lead to a big break. We want to help remember and identify the victims because it helps the police find what correlations our victims had with our perpetrator and bring him closer to justice. We also want to help the police find the Bible Belt Strangler so he can be held accountable for his actions. We want to thank all the media who are becoming an advocate for these victims and getting their stories out to the public. Thank you to all of the dedicated members of the law enforcement who are working on these cases and are ready to take the tips you provide and use to identify these victims and the person responsible for their death. As Winston Churchill once said, Now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is, perhaps, the end of the beginning. Thank you. Leslie Earhart from the TBI was supposed to be here. She's their public information officer. Unfortunately, she was ill and her system was called away at the last moment. So she's asked me to say a few things about the students. She said she appreciates the hard work of the students and uh, she supports young people and their advocacy for victims. And they are going to be handling the tips for this case. Contact them at 1-800-TBI-FIND. They will make sure that all of the tips and information get distributed to the different police agencies. And now I'm going to bring on the Kentucky State Police. 
Good afternoon. My name is Trooper Shane Jacobs. I'm the Public Affairs Officer for Post 10 Harlan. First of all, we would like to thank Elizabeth, the school, the administrators for allowing us to come over, be able to share information with the local city, county, state agencies over here with the case that we have in Kentucky. Again, it's very important that as law enforcement, that we share information, especially since this is a multi-state. We're here to try to get that information out, to share it, to figure out exactly what we have, to hopefully bring closure to these families and hopefully identify some of these. We're hopefully that we're very close. We feel that we're very close in Kentucky to identifying our cold case individual. Again, guys, the hard work here you've put in this high school by keeping this alive, by trying to help us share information, it's been very vital and very thankful for that. And on behalf of the Kentucky State Police, we're very thankful that you all allowed us to come over here and to be part of this. So thank you. Also, anyone with information can contact Post 10 Harlan at 1-606-573-3131. Behind me is Detective Aaron Frederick. He's been working on this case, along with our intelligence analyst, Chris Daniel, both with the Kentucky State Police. They've come over today to assist with this. But again, if you have information, you can contact Post 10 Harlan and try to get this closure to these families. So thank you. We have just a few moments for any questions anybody has. I ask that you would step to the microphone, just identify which agency you're with, and then please direct the question to the person you would like to answer it. Does anyone have a question they would like to ask? Yeah. Sure, if you have to. Yeah. Sure. So my name is Alex Campbell. I teach sociology at Elizabethan High School. And that class is open to any grade level. So I have freshmen, juniors, and sophomores. I don't have any seniors in there this year. Me three. Actually, no, it was a semester-long class, and we actually took a little break to do another project in the middle. But I would say we've probably worked on this about 80% of the semester. Yes, so we had one group of students that was working on media. So we had people doing TV, print media, et cetera. Somebody was looking into social media and online, and they found that they had just been created a Redhead Murders Facebook page. So there was a phone number contact on there, and I called Shane. We talked a couple of days later, and so that was the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about the process and how you all went about making this happen? Yes, of course. I'm not a criminal justice teacher, but I just tried to get as many different courses that I could, consulted criminal justice teachers here. Of course, we had law enforcement officials helping us. So we put those together, and the students felt that they could come up with 21 characteristics that would help identify this person. The class originally started, I found that there was about 250 million people living in the United States in 1980. So I said, your challenge is to find one out of 250 million. And they actually thought that these 21 characteristics would really narrow it down to just a few people. So that's how the 21 characteristics came about. We will, by the way, be emailing all of those to media and law enforcement that are here today. You'll have the full eight-page profile, plus the signature, plus the MO, plus the offender timeline, and the victim timeline. That'll all be in your media packet. Anything else to answer your question? Okay, thank you. Now, sociology has a state curriculum. Yes. Uh, so I am supposed to cover all types of things that deal with sociology. This includes family, includes socioeconomic status. It includes the media, peers, all these types of things. And so I do feel that we covered those, but we just did it wrapped around this idea of the project. Last semester, we worked with Carter County on one of their cold cases. 
And in some ways, the lady who lost her life was similar to some of these. So as we were doing research, I actually stumbled upon these and thought that maybe this would be something interesting my students would like to take up. And when we found out that one of the victims was found about 30 minutes from here, the students were really interested. So we just decided to go that route. Yeah, we're excited. The press conference was a lot of, we appreciate you guys. Without you all, we wouldn't have a press conference. So a lot of work went into that, but we really want to see what comes of it. And the students the other day insisted that if any breaks in the case occur, they wanted to get back together in the future and just talk about maybe that some of their actions had led to some good results down the line somewhere. So I really look forward to that meeting. This, this case spans over 30 years, and these kids are they're teenagers now. What kept their attention to a case that's so old so dated? I don't really know. I think in part, the fact that they were unknown and they didn't have a family made a lot of the kids feel like they needed somebody to advocate for them. And so I think that was interesting. I think the location, that they were kind of close to where we live. Of course, I think CSI and criminal justice are now, there's a lot of TV shows and things about that. So I think that was part of it too. But I think the closer they got into the case and looking at the case, they realized that they might actually be able to change something. I think especially young people today feel like if they do work, they want something to come out of it. And I believe that this press conference made them feel like that in the future, something good could come from their work. One of the other projects they did this semester was they had the Todd McKee Memorial Ceremony for the agent who died at Waco, who actually graduated from here. And uh, that was a pretty powerful connection. Actually, his parents brought the kids pizza the other day and had lunch with them to just thank them for what they had done. But we've also had things like a Vietnam Veterans Welcome Home that was very powerful here. So we just have great students at this school. And anytime you give them a challenge, it seems like they always rise up and meet it and usually even exceed expectations. So in a way, I've gotten used to our students just doing amazing things. I want them to know, and I think they know this now, that you're never too young to make a change in the world. And when you see a problem in the world, you don't have to wait on somebody else to fix it. That no matter your age, you can use the skills that you have to go out there and try to make the world a better place. And so I think they'll take that with them. And when they see problems in the future, they're going to, instead of complaining, they're going to move to actually make them better. With all the information... That's been presented now. This one considered a, a serial killer case causing me I do not know. You can direct those to Leslie Earhart at the Public Information Office. So I'm not sure on that. But we felt that with the work that we had done with law enforcement and their encouragement, that they also felt that it was one person that they deserve a name, and it would separate these six from the more than a dozen cases that are oftentimes very different from these six. We love to bring research from cases outside this that's something we thought about. This may be my last semester teaching sociology, and I think the students really want it to go forward. So we've thought about trying to work with other schools. I actually have been contacted by two schools, one in the Knoxville region, one in the Memphis region, and they thought that maybe they could do some work in the coming years on the victims in their areas. So I think the students would really like to see that other people have taken up their work and it's not stopped. So hopefully that can happen. Thank you. Question for just one of the one
spider sleuth and kind of the student. And for your all's job, does that make it easier that more people are interested in sharing all their interests on social media? Is that about? Does that help people in feeling like they're moving forward on a case that maybe in the 80s, there maybe was, I looked in our archive, we probably had a new video, and didn't even look like anybody out here when some of things happened. And so maybe those were just, they were lost back in the 80s because there wasn't a lot of publicity around Facebook and Twitter. And now you just have so much interest from the general public and all these avenues. Is that helpful to you guys? Would that be helpful in the future? Or is that a good job to do more I think social media helps in things like this. I think there's sometimes that social media does not help. There's a, you have to separate the gossip from the facts, but in something like this, it definitely helps. And it's technology. A lot of these cases will be solved today because of technology. In the 70s and 80s, when I started my law enforcement career, we did not have this technology. So you had to go out and talk to people, interview people, and create the physical evidence to solve cases. Extremely difficult to do. So today's technology, it helps tremendously. And what these kids have done, it's, it speaks well to them in the program here. They've done a fantastic job. They came up and worked on one of our cases that's, what, 25, 30 years old, somewhere in there. And I think they would have been very beneficial in helping solve that, but all of the actors in that case, have since passed away. So the solvability was not there. But it's a double-edged sword, I guess. But in this case, much more good than bad. I don't like to echo that, too, because on Kentucky's, our case, we're hopefully put about ready to put a name with this individual, and it all comes back from Facebook. The interviews and interviews on this cold case, and a lady in North Carolina contacted us and feels that she has information and knows who this lady is, or Jane Doe. And we went down, took DNA from what we feel possibly the daughter. Now, at this time, we're waiting on results from that. But it all comes back from a Facebook post that a lady in North Carolina saw this post, interviews that we put out. So, again, yeah, social media is, in this instance, is huge. It's very vital that as law enforcement agencies across the nation, we share information, we work together, and when that happens, cases get solved. And as, that's what we're doing today. And we, again, we're just thankful that you all have asked us to come over and be part of this, to be able to share this information, and hopefully a case this individual. Talk a little bit about what it was like to be a part of a project like this and how it compares to some of your other classes. It was unique at first because like, when you think of sociology, you think something about the cranium or something like that. And then we really broke it down. This pretty much the study of people in groups. So that's really what sociology is all about. So it was unique to work on this. And there's not really a lot of classes that go into this type of style of uh, teaching because pretty much Mr. Campbell, he gave us the resources. And then we talked about it a little bit. We learned from what we got through this. And then we started to actually go into the cases and actually bring those resources with us. So we started to learn how to do this through our resources that was gave from Mr. Campbell. And it's pretty incredible what we have here today. It's kind of because some of us might not be here the next week. But since we got this press conference here today and we have everybody here, everybody's in full account and full attendance. Everybody wanted to do this. So pretty much we were ready So. Yeah, it's a wonderful experience because just like us, we usually don't get an experience like this. 
usually said with many of the FBI, the TBI, CIA, whatever law enforcement agency gets to do this, we we never get to have this type of chance. And it's wonderful that we have this chance. Were your classmates getting interested in law enforcement because of something like this? Well, some of us do want to go into a career of criminal justice. I believe it has grown on some of more of our uh, classmates throughout this week, throughout these a couple months. But all in all, just the case, the cases themselves interest us to actually do this. Does anyone else have a question for any of the students? I'd love for them to speak if you want to ask them anything. Anybody else? Okay, so whenever we pack up here, I know some of you may want to get some direct quotes from them. Be looking for the media packet. And remember, media, you guys have a very important job. If we don't get the word out about these cases, then the people who can't speak to law enforcement. So I appreciate you guys being here today. Have a nice afternoon. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.